Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we look at 40 years of ID magazine. It was so ahead of its time as far as like inclusivity and I think the spirit of ID is really about like the establishment shining a light on the new generation. So there's always like a real mix of generations within the publication that still holds true today. Plus, the Elizabeth Line in London finally opens. It is going to be much, much quicker. So it is the sort of thing that's going to transform the life of a lot of Londoners and the way they get around in ways we can't necessarily predict yet. There will be places that suddenly your friends are buying houses in Woolwich or something and you'll be unable to, to understand how this has happened and it will be because of Crossrail. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Hong Kong. Our bureau chief there, James Chambers, look at Hong Kong's press freedom after a steep drop in the rankings. And he also looks at the future of the city's famous foreign correspondence club. Today is World Press Freedom Day, and Hong Kong is making the headlines yet again for all the wrong reasons. The territory has fallen from 80th place to 148th place, in the 2022 Press Freedom Index, which was published today. It's the steepest drop of any of the 180 countries included in this year's annual rankings, and the many reasons for this plunge are well documented. Journalists here are currently languishing in jail, and several Cantonese news outlets have been raided and forced to close in the last 12 months. To make use of media work as a tool to pursue their political purpose or other interests, they are the evil elements that damage press freedom. Alongside this official crackdown on press freedom and the city's slide down the rankings, both of which show no signs of stopping, there is also the creeping and often unseen incidents of self-censorship. The recent actions of the Foreign Correspondence Club provided a very public example of how this insidious threat to a free press can silence unwanted critics just as effectively as any police raid. On World Press Freedom Day, the FCC would usually have released the winners of the annual Human Rights Press Awards. However, instead of honouring fearless frontline reporting from Hong Kong and around the region, the FCC decided last month to suspend this year's awards. The board feared that handing out prizes to Stan News could now, in present-day Hong Kong, constitute a crime. Journalism is not sedition, but seditious acts and activities and inciting uh, other people through public acts and activities could not be condoned under the guise of news reporting. Stan News was one of the local news outlets that was raided by the police over Christmas and later closed. So for the FCC, erring on the side of caution was the surest way of protecting its staff from prosecution and saving a Hong Kong institution that goes back 70 years. But at the same time, there's no denying that the FCC's decision to fight another day comes at a cost to the press club's credibility. 
and calls into question its very reason for being. The FCC is first and foremost a working press club that just so happens to serve cheap booze and some fantastic curries. It represents international media in the city, and up until very recently, it has been a fiercely outspoken advocate for press freedom, voicing support and providing recognition for journalists working around Asia, from mainland China to Vietnam, Myanmar and Thailand. And since Hong Kong has become one of the biggest stories this century, the club has taken on a second life as a safe haven and spokesperson for reporters who are covering events right outside its own front door. From the pro-democracy protests in 2019, right through to the implementation of the national security law in 2020, and the string of arrests that have followed. These fundamental questions about the FCC's future purpose have come along at a particularly sensitive time in the club's history. For the past 40 years, the FCC's home in Hong Kong has been a Grade 1 listed heritage building on Lower Albert Road. This unique address is a short walk from the office towers of Central, the late-night party district of Lang Kwai Fong, and also Government House, the colonial-era residence of the chief executive. However, the building's lease is up for renewal this year, and the landlord is none other than the Hong Kong government. Talk of the FCC being turfed out of Lower Albert Road has been doing the rounds of the main bar ever since 2018, when the club hosted a talk by a relatively unknown activist called Andy Chan, who was calling for Hong Kong independence. Due to the nature of how the Chinese propaganda machine works, the National Party was instantly demonized as some sort of extremist group due to this single word, independence. In reality, what the National Party is chasing after is no different from what many Hong Kongers wish for, the dream of democracy here in Hong Kong. That event resulted in the FCC's vice president at the time, Victor Mallet of the Financial Times, being effectively booted out of the city. Kicking out the FCC now from its home of 40 years by either hiking up the rents or finding a new tenant willing to pay more than the club can afford could complete Beijing's payback for crossing one of its major red lines. But even if the government does renew the lease, the FCC now loses, as any extended stay is sure to be seen in some corners of the bar as a reward for dumping the awards and kowtowing to Beijing. First-time visitors to the building on Lower Albert Road are almost always struck by the club's historical feel. It looks and feels like a relic from the colonial era. A fresh start could give this vital press club a whole new lease of life. And on The Stack this week, I had the pleasure to speak with Alistair McCain, editor-in-chief of ID Magazine. We spoke about the title's 40th anniversary, and they have a new book out to celebrate. The day after I graduated, I moved to London, and the day after that, I went and knocked on the door at ID Magazine on Tabernacle Street in East London, which is very old school. It was kind of like we just... I I remember at that time, I only had an email for like a year or something, so that's how we used to do things, right? We'd go and like knock on the door and introduce ourselves with my portfolio, and I ended up meeting Edward Enenfull, who... um, we all know is the the um, editor in chief of British Vogue now. He uh, 
he hired me as his his assistant when I was 20. So, um, yeah, I guess he liked my design or my work or my photography or whatever it was in my portfolio and ended up giving me an opportunity. And I worked with him for a couple of years. And, you know, my my story with ID is very kind of old school, sort of work your way up the ladder like apprenticeship, you know. It's like I started, as, as I said, as an assistant to Edward. He's very much a mentor and... And I assisted him on everything that we were working on at that time, like ID, working on fashion shows, consulting. We were working on Italian Vogue, Japanese Vogue, you know, very much that kind of like working freelance career. So I got to really see everything at that time in, you know, my early 20s and the early 2000s. And then when I stopped assisting, I started doing like some pages and like really kind of getting out on my own and just building my portfolio. And I've always just been kind of associated with the magazine even when I was working for different publications I've all like ID's always been part of my story so and I before I was editor-in-chief I was fashion director for five years so yeah it's been uh yeah I like to say I'm last man standing exactly <laughs> well, and you've been editing for three years now yeah and, and I'm curious for example of course this book looks at the whole history do you still look at the first issues I mean and kind of compare to what you do today because yeah. of course so many things have changed in the world but but there's still something of it's the original idea yeah, there. it's really incredible with id because so many things in the world have changed and the way that we work has changed but the dna and the you know the fabric of like that first issue i have the first issue in my office i don't even know how many were made but it was a 50p stapled together zine that um terry and trisha had had worked on and I have that issue that I often like refer to. It's it's exactly the same DNA as it is today. You know, it was like so ahead of its time as far as like, you know, inclusivity and you know having. I think the spirit of ID is really about like the establishment shining a light on the new generation. So there's always like a real mix of generations within the within the publication that still holds true today. And um, you know, really all the all the DNA of the brand up until today is in the first issue. It's incredible like to be able to to be able to create a whole brand in one in one zine is really phenomenal. So yeah. And such a recognizable brand because I have to say even though for example I come from Brazil but even in Brazil you he you hear about ID. Yeah. I think it's you know even though it is a British publication right you yeah. can say that in a yeah. way. <laughs> I, I think it's almost worldwide in a yeah, way. Yeah, it's right? more global now, yeah. yeah. And one thing about the book that I think all the magazine nerds out there would enjoy is all those kind of little quotes for example Terry mentions you know about the covers every you need a wink, right? Yeah, exactly. On, the, on your right eye. But then exactly. apparently Madonna <laughs> couldn't do it for some reason and then you decided to flip her over it's such an interesting story like yeah. this that makes the book right exactly and there's some of me like the the interview in the book with terry and trisha is like really it's such a great look at like the history in the early days and them working in their kitchen and trisha making like pasta for all the contributors and like it's really like that's really the spirit of id is this kind of homegrown cottage industry family publication and I mean, even until today, we get cover tries that come in with the wrong eye. And, you know, like also like when I when I started editing the magazine, I was already based in New York. And a lot of the young people in New York didn't know about ID. So my first mission really was to open ID up to like the young generation in, in New York City and like then obviously globally. But um, 
you know, I just started like educating the all the skaters and musicians and rappers and stylists and and models, etc. In New York, and like, you know, my philosophy with ID has always been like, if you want somebody to like the magazine, you just put them in it because we're all part of this like community that work together. And yeah, and a lot of people still today don't understand that the logo is a wink and a smile. You know, so they recognize the covers, they recognize the you know the iconography of that and like the wink, but. Not necessarily understanding that the logo is a wink and a smile in itself, and yeah, and, and I remember hearing a story from Terry about um, when Madonna was on the cover because she wasn't famous yet; it was her first ever cover of a magazine, and you know, some of the people in London thought it was Boy George because the, <laughs> he was more, much more famous than yeah. Madonna at that time, you know. <laughs> so yeah, there's so many great stories. I mean, it's such a, it's such an incredible archive and an amazing. It's just such an amazing brand, but like there's just been so many people involved in it. I think a lot of magazines today, they're like a really small team that create this magazine over time. But ID's always been about this ecosystem of like family and community. And it's really, it's really wide reaching, you know? So like there's so many people. I think once you've worked for ID, you sort of feel like you're part of the family. So the family is very big, you know? And let's talk about the book. I mean, again, another thing I like uh, about the book that sometimes there's the proper page of the magazine. So yeah. it is nice, for example, for me, I, n- I never, uh, you know, read ID in the in the 80s or, or, yeah. or even the 90s. So it's nice to see the feel and how things changed. Exactly. Did you want it to put that? By the way, it's a heavy book. How many pages? My God. <laughs> I don't even know. It's it, not enough pages it, because 40 years of work yes. is, is a lot to fit in a book. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24. It is almost certain that you can think of songs or pieces of music which have an extraordinarily potent effect on your mood. You might not have thought about why, but the music journalist Jude Rogers has. Her new book, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, is both a memoir of her own journey as a pop fan and an exploration of the psychological and neurological reasons why music has the extraordinary effect on us that it does. Monaco's Andrew Muller spoke to Jude Rogers at Midori House and he began by asking her if she thinks pop music and the love for it reflects our psychological needs. Yeah, it's a... It is a search for something that will fill a gap in many ways. I think it's just a place of possibilities, really. It's a place of different experiences, different people. You know, where I grew up was, you know, everywhere. Everyone thinks they grew up somewhere deeply ordinary and boring. <laughs> but, um, you know, I grew up in a South Walian family, you know, lower middle class, you know, grandparents, you know, down the road, quite old-fashioned in some respects in Wales. So suddenly pop music entering this you know, rainy South Walian enclave <laughs> was quite an amazing thing. And yes, when when my father died, you know, the first memories I had after his death in in my head now, and this is interesting as well because memory is something I go mm. into in detail in the book and it's fragility and, you know, how songs help us pin down memories. It was a link to my dad. The kind of songs were a link to my father. And, you know, I know from his friends and um, family that he was a lover of music. He left behind his records, obviously. And... Music was the fact that the last thing I remember of our time together was me and him talking on the front doorstep about him telling me to remember what was going to be number one that week because he was going into hospital and he couldn't find out. And, you know, that was when I go back to my last memory of him, it's him asking me that question. Um, I know at that age I love music already. Mm. And obviously I went on to become a music journalist. <laughs> so there you go. 
Well, this obviously is a, a, a similar trajectory to the one I described up to a point as well in that I, I developed for some reason, I never fully comprehended some obviously untoward fondness for popular music, which led me to wanting to write about it. Um, but what I marvelled about uh, at your book, and it was something I don't think I could bring myself to do at all, uh, possibly due to overt self-consciousness, but that brilliant, absolutely unself-conscious capturing of the absolute unrestrained gaucheness uh, of, of early pop fandom when you're yeah. cutting things out and putting them in scrapbooks and earnestly poring over song lyrics trying to discern hidden meanings and stuff. Um, you write about that younger version of yourself with great affection, which probably partially answers my question, but how excruciating or otherwise was writing those passages? It wasn't excruciating at all, actually. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. It's funny, when I a little while before I started writing the book, I found lots of old stuff. My mum found a box of old um, exercise books from school and stuff like that. And there's actually a Nena Cherry sticker that is the start of one of the chapter headings now that uh, comes from that time. Um, now, I I think it's because I partly still have it now. You know, <laughs> I'm 43 years old and I still get incredibly moved by pop songs. I also have a seven-year-old who is now in that stage and he is obsessed with Ed Sheeran's Bad Habits. You know, he doesn't understand what the words are. <laughs> he doesn't understand the words of songs. And I don't think I did at that time either. I was just fascinated with these people. They were like characters, really, that represented different possibilities, different worlds, different things that I could le learn about. Um, you know, the people for me, you know, I write about some of them in the book, you know, there is you know, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely's haircuts. What were, what were these haircuts? And these, <laughs> you know, these amazing coiffured Princess Diana kind of things. I loved them and their friendship and they, this the idealised version of friendship. I was quite a lonely kid, so maybe that was that. Nena Cherry came along singing Buffalo Stance on top of the pops. And she was this, you know, she was like anybody I knew. She was a, a woman from... She was Swedish, but she'd grown up in America. She was mixed race. She had an African dad. She had she was pregnant, top of the pops. She was rapping. You know, <laughs> I, I was a little you know Welsh girl who went to Sunday school. Um, Adam Adamant is another one who um, you know I kind of just saw him like this fairy tale hero figure, and I think. You know, we still carry these people with us, even when we're grown up. We might feel a bit embarrassed about it. Well, some people might. I don't think I do, actually. I think I'm quite at peace with it <laughs> did, did you not ever find, especially once you became established as a music journalist, that actually getting to know these people took away any of that mystique? There is a bit where you mentioned going to see uh, Tony Bennett, uh, and at the party afterwards you see somebody vaguely familiar who appears to have arrived with a former colleague of mine, in yes. fact, Simon Price from Melody Maker, and you recognise, spoiler alert, that it is, in fact, adamant. Um, uh, do, do moments like that take anything away from this for you when you just realise, oh, it's just the, it's that guy in a hat and we're in a room? Well, that was at the end of a night when I'd had a few glasses of wine at the after party <laughs> and I ran up the stairs and called my mum excitedly. My mum was just like, why, you, you know, I knew in the back of her head, it's like, why are you calling me? You know, it's quarter to 11, I'm in bed, you're 30. Yeah. Um, who's, who's died? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I did run away then and I've never seen him live since. I've never interviewed him. I don't think I want to because that moment was so magical just chancing upon him so yeah I guess it does affect things you know I I write a chapter about my teenage obsession with REM um, mm. and what it was like to interview Michael Stipe years later and I really wanted to write about that because I don't think music journalists write a lot about you know the fact that you know we want to interview people because we're fans and it's a very hard dynamic to kind of navigate when you're trying to be this you know objective critical you know good journalist 
And I try and kind of investigate that a little bit. But, um, you know, I didn't sleep the night before I interviewed Michael Stipe because I was that 14-year-old girl still, you know. And also, I just didn't want him to hate the interview, partly for professional reasons, but mainly for personal ones. Um, You talk a lot about memory and and how pop songs anchor our memories um, and, and vice versa. But... You mentioned earlier your, your son not understanding the lyrics of Ed Sheeran songs, and <laughs> isn't he lucky? Uh, but, but the thing is, what you go into when you talk to actual professionals, psychologists, that it's not just the words in songs that anchor us to particular things. And that's, that's easy to understand. If there's a song we hear and there's a line in the chorus that reminds us of that thing that happened to us, then yeah, obviously that song starts to embed itself in us. But it's not just that, is it? There's, no. there's, there's something more primal than that going on? Yeah, it's, it's quite a mysterious thing. And my plan with this book was trying to kind of pin down this magic. And I don't think you can ever fully pin down the magic, but you can you know, speak to musicologists and try and analyse a song. You know, The first song I remember, the first thing I remember after my father died is the song Freedom by Wham, which I still love. I don't care that it's, if people think it's cheesy, I think it's wonderful. It's great Motown pastiche. And I talked to a, a brilliant writer on all subjects, a guy called Philip Ball, who wrote this book called The Music Instinct, which sort of picks apart, you know, the writing of that song, you know, um, using you know the intervals in that music. Um, we talk about, you know, how... The writing of pop songs is about familiarities of patterns, but surprises within their patterns. I go into some detail about how our love of songs is a lot to do with our anticipation of what's coming next. You know, that if it's a song we haven't heard before, if we guess in our heads where that melody is going to go, it feels great. If it surprises us in, in a certain way, that can feel great. You know, I love listening to old favourite songs because I know what's coming next and when that bit comes that I really love the fact <laughs> they still come is it, it does do something to your brain I find that fascinating to find that out by talking to neuroscientists you know, um, and I'm not a scientist myself I am a journalist I'm somebody with a single award GCSE in science so talking to these neuroscientists and getting them to check that I'd quoted them properly <laughs> was very important to me but um, the brain is a fascinating thing and music more and more is becoming a subject that is studied, investigated so widely in so many um, university departments across the world. You know, whether music is this thing that is vital to our evolution as people, that's a big subject. And it seems that the academic communities around the world are going closer to, yes, you know, this is something that is part of us. 95% of people do respond to music. You know, some of those people will have four CDs. Some of those people will be like me and you. You know, we will, with, you know, encyclopedic knowledges of the back catalogue of, you know, whoever. But, you know, it's something that is fundamental to a lot of people. Uh- just finally, there's a, there's an obverse, I guess, to that, that thing you mentioned there of tapping into a song because we kind of get a sense of where it might be about to go. And it's a, it's, it's a good question, I think, to put to uh, people who have been music journalists, especially for long enough that they have seen various generations of popular song come and mm. go. Does your anticipation of the bit you think is coming ever find itself jading I guess into oh god here we go I know exactly what's about to happen I don't need to hear the rest of this basically what I'm asking is do you still get as excited as you once did I think I like other different music now um for different new music now than I used to you know I still go back to old favorites for for comfort because I know them and they're also associated with experiences friends people you know old partners my current partner you know they have a context around them whereas the music I'm more into now is more avant-garde, like lots of weird electronica, strange folk music. You know, I, I am trying to seek out more 
weird things that will surprise me these days. But yeah, I'll still listen to Wham as well. <laughs> And Andrew Muller is here delving to the world of wartime legends, and he explains who the ghost of Kiev really is. Early in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, reports began circulating about the prowess of a particular Ukrainian fighter pilot. Christened with the evocative and ominous nickname, the Ghost of Kiev, he was said to have shot down as many as 10 Russian jets in the first few days of the war. The Ghost of Kiev was flammed up by a few plausible-seeming sources. Ukraine's former president, Petro Poroshenko, tweeted an image of a fighter pilot, although rendered unidentifiable by helmet, visor and respirator, claiming it was the Ghost. Ukraine's intelligence service, the SBU, published the same picture on its social media channels, suggesting that here was the ghost of Kiev preparing for, or just back from, another duel in Ukraine's skies. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense disseminated combat footage claimed to have been filmed from the cockpit of the ghost's MiG-29. At which point, the Ghost of Kiev story rather ran away with itself. It was said that he had shot down as many as 40 Russian aircraft. Songs hastily composed in his honour were uploaded to YouTube. Images and memes flooded social media. A model aeroplane kit became available. A minor online cottage industry of Ghost of Kiev t-shirts, coffee mugs and other ephemera sprang quickly up. This week, Ukraine's Air Force Command decided to exorcise the Ghost of Kiev. This was apparently prompted by rumours that the ghost was Major Stepan Tarabalka, a Ukrainian pilot shot down and killed on March 13th and posthumously awarded the Order of the Gold Star of the Hero of Ukraine Medal. Though Tarabalka's death and the honour were announced on March 25th, the connection between Tarabalka and the Ghost of Kiev only seems to have been made by the collective online consciousness in recent days. The Ukrainian Air Force Command statement clarified that Tarabalka was not the ghost and had not shot down 40 planes. The ghost of Kiev was actually, the statement explained, a superhero legend whose character was created by Ukrainians. The real ghost of Kiev, they suggested, was the entire 40th Tactical Aviation Brigade of Ukraine's Air Force, the unit defending the skies above the capital. You can see what they're trying to do here. Keep in some way the ghost alive. And fair enough. They have a war to win, public spirit to maintain, but it's another part of the Ukraine Air Force Command statement that everyone would do well to heed. We ask the Ukrainian community not to neglect the basic rules of information hygiene, they said. Check the sources of information before spreading it. Crazy thought, let's see if it catches on, etc. But had people done this from the start, the ghost would never have got airborne. 
The much retweeted photo of the ghost was years old. The combat footage was from a video game, and the numbers claimed for the Ghost of Kiev were wildly improbable in that no acknowledged fighter aces of the Jet Age have got anywhere near them, certainly not in just a few weeks of combat. The closest real-life approximation of the Ghost of Kiev, i.e. the whole protector of the skies of a nation under siege thing, is possibly General Giora Epstein, a Mirage pilot of the Israeli Air Force with confirmed downings of 16 Egyptian jets and one Egyptian helicopter. But that was across three wars between 1967 and 1973. It is not difficult to see why the Ghost of Kiev took, if you will, off. Since aerial combat began in World War I, the fighter pilot has enjoyed a luster bestowed upon no other variety of warrior. And in this specific instance, the ghost served as a relatable personification of Ukraine's indisputably heroic against the odds defense, an almost literal David facing down the Russian Goliath. People believed it for the same reason that most people believe most things, i.e. that they very much hoped it was true. And sometimes, though not that often, it is. Also early in the current war, the story emerged of the doughty, if indecorous, Ukrainian defenders of Snake Island. The yarn spun was that a small contingent of Ukrainian troops stationed on this Black Sea outcrop were instructed to surrender by the Russian Navy cruiser Moskva, replied with cheerfully profane defiance, and were killed. It had every appearance of a too-good-to-be-true propaganda myth, and was widely related by social media users and actual media outlets who clearly regarded it as too good to check. But it seems to have been true, more or less, aside happily from the detail of the defender's martyrdom. At least some were taken alive, and at least one, Roman Hrybov, whose famous admonishment to the Moskva now adorns a Ukrainian postage stamp, was returned to Ukraine in a prisoner swap. The tale has even been furnished with a piquant conclusion, with the subsequent sinking of the Moskva by Ukrainian missiles. Wars are strange, confusing, and chaotic things. It is not always entirely clear what happened even decades after the last shots were fired. But in any ongoing conflict, there are many more ghosts of Kiev than there are Snake Islands, and it is sensible to regard claims made by all protagonists with an appropriate amount of scepticism. Perhaps especially when we want to believe them. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We have a special edition of what we learned now directly from Australia. It is Andrew Muller again. We learned this week that the producers had had another one of their ideas. Aww. We appreciate your sympathy at this difficult time. 
We learned that the producers had learned that the compiler and narrator of these monologues had announced his intention to set off for the South Seas in search of a vast and strange land, long rumoured to still exist in the vicinity, but from which little had been heard for some while. Very good. Don't stint on the Atmos. We learned that, therefore, the producers wanted to learn what there was to be learned from returning for the first time in a long lockdown-enforced while to the land of one's ancestors. Yeah, Maybe this won't let's give it suck a go. this we'll time around. It wouldn't hurt, would it? I'll give it another 30 seconds. Yeah, we'll give it a try. Yeah. We learned, or rather relearned, that actually getting to Australia is still just about the most tedious and least pleasant possible way of spending 24 hours, like even worse than listening in a single sitting to the entire catalogue of Billy Joel. No, you don't. But we learned upon arrival that some things have not changed, in a good way. We heard from the Kookaburra earlier, that was this one. So sticking with the previously established theme of avian atmospherics, let's have the Australian Magpie. Beat that, British Magpie. See, you can't. I mean, that's just a din. But we learned that Melbourne is in fact still here, and has emerged more or less from one of the world's longest and most stringent COVID-19 lockdowns. Melburnians are once again drinking the coffee with which they are rightly, if perhaps somewhat excessively pleased, and attending, very possibly travelling by tram, matches of that strange game which bewitches the city during the southern winter. From which we learned that there are still few more agreeable expenditures of an afternoon than visiting the Melbourne Cricket Ground to watch a game of Australian rules football, even if the fixture which falls into your schedule serves you up a win by Collingwood, a club which, for the uninitiated, has long combined Manchester United's sense of entitlement with Millwall's persecution complex. Have got a Sunday special to go with Anzac Day? Sunday special! <laughs> Had a good view of that one, and will grudgingly concede that young Ginevan looks like a player. Good old that will do, though. Scrutinising the newspapers afterwards, we learned that there is an election on. Aww. Well, yes, but it would be as well for an alleged sidelong look at the news monologue to look sidelong at some actual news, and that's what we've got to work with, so we're running with it. By way of accompaniment, here is the jingle which soundtracked a previous attempt 50 years back by the Australian Labour Party to return from a longish stretch in the wilderness. <laughs> Don't knock it, it worked. However, we learned that this Australian election is rather lighter than that of 1972 on faintly hysterical gospel exaltations heavily influenced by hippie musical hair, and perhaps heavier on rows about the correct preparation of chicken. Not an Australian native, but maintaining the ornithological theme. Good work. 
We learned that Scott Morrison, Australia's Prime Minister as of this broadcast, had cooked dinner for his family. And we learned this because he put a picture of it on the internet, because that's what people do these days for some reason. And we learned from this that the chicken appeared somewhat underdone which became a whole thing. But then we learned that it wasn't because the Prime Minister himself felt it necessary to address the nation on the subject. Morrison's words now rendered by Monocle24's Australian Elections Desk Chief, whoever Christie could get to read this nonsense out. I mean, people just kept coming back for seconds. I think it was just the way the light bounced off the skin of the chicken. But we learned, while vaguely wondering what we'd come all this way for, that coming all this way is about to get somewhat easier. We learned that Australia's national carrier Qantas, and let's pivot to a new theme of antique Australian television jingles, We learned that Qantas hopes by 2025 to do London to Sydney or Melbourne in just one excruciating hop, and we learned that they hope to take the edge off this proposed 20-hour flight by including on the A350s what they call well-being zones. We are encouraged by the illustrations, which appear to include the primary requisite for long-haul equanimity, i.e. an absence of other bloody passengers. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And from Monocle on design this week, we hear how Beijing-based practice Open is leading the way in terms of cultural architecture in China. Well, the book looks at six projects that have been designed by Open. It explores it in a slightly different way. You know, we didn't want to do a book where we just introduced the sort of final product of a project or a design and talked about it in a sort of PR-ish way. We wanted to really get stuck into the real challenges and opportunities of what it means to be designing and building in China today. We chose these projects because they they are cultural projects, but also they're very, very different. They range from being very small and hidden to really large, monumental architectural pieces. Some of them are new-built, and others are um, a rebuilding exercise, a repurposing of existing structures. But what they all do and what they all share in common is they show the way that uh, Li Hu and Wen Zheng approached their architecture in a very thoughtful, meaningful way that I think reflects how architecture is happening in China today. And I think that's interesting not just for people within China, but also architects, designers, cultural organizations outside of China. Yeah, we wanted to really sort of spark a conversation about what is cultural architecture, what is happening in China, but not in a very narrow focus, showing all the sort of shiny, fabulous final pictures. So you'll see even the way each chapter is designed, it shows the reality, it shows the grittiness of the site. Mm. And then it shows the development And we talk very openly about what were the problems that came up, how 
ingenious were they to be able to work around this or turn something into an opportunity. I think the pandemic, the whole world was experiencing a shutting down of culture. It was this time where we could stop and ask ourselves, like, how are we trying to interact with culture now, whether it's performing arts or, you know, design, painting, anything, opera. How important is that as a, as a culture to everyone, not just maybe sort of elite levels of society, but to everyone? Mm. What are the problems with cultural institutions? Why are cultural institutions trying to address issues in terms of making it more accessible or more friendly and less standoffish or maybe or maybe intimidating you know so there are i think a lot of people around the world were asking questions and kind of leading on from that wenjing you know you you've kind of focused on the your work within the cultural sphere how difficult was it to kind of narrow down your projects and to decide on on which ones you wanted represented in this format we are quite open uh, in terms of building typology, we as an office would choose to engage in. So like last year, we finished one of probably our only one high-rise uh, office building. Besides cultural architecture, we also have um, many different typologies. Making the decision of focusing on cultural architecture was a big decision, and then you know, choosing the projects are relatively easy. To me, the cultural projects are always a lens into the social and cultural landscape of our time and place. You know, it's like a thermometer of what the, um, the, the society, where the society is at at the moment. It connects us to many things. The other thing that is really important to remember about China is that China is culturally very diverse. So the culture, maybe where the UCCA June Museum is, you know, outside of Beijing, compared to Tang Shanghai, which is a very urban, quite hard landscape in the center. These are culturally very, very different contexts. All architects say they... You know, they do their contextual analysis and everything. But we all know architects who literally look at the site, look at plans. But Li Hu and Wenjing don't do that. They go to the site. They spend time on the site. Mm. They talk to people. They watch who uses what in the neighborhood. They understand the context in a much deeper, deeper way then they think about that long before they're coming along with any great idea about a design. I think it's a very respectful way th that reflects this diversity of culture. And that's really interesting insight into kind of uh, the open architecture approach to things. Uh, and I was actually wondering, Wenjing, whether you could maybe just briefly talk us through the, the manifesto, which is, you know, that's quite central to the book, uh, and just maybe let us know about how important the manifesto is to the practice's identity and how it shapes your work? You know, I think manifesto is a risky word nowadays. You know, everything you say. 
has multiple meanings and multiple facets to an issue. We wrote the manifesto fairly recently. It's not a declaration of what our agenda is or what we plan to do in the future. It's more of a reflection of who we are, you know, what we believe in, and how we anchored our architecture. It's deliberately written in a more relaxed tone rather than a sort of strong, firm declaration kind of thing. One central idea is connection, you know, how our architecture can connect us with other people. Architecture as a vehicle, as a place for people to meet, to share, and architecture as a connection, establish a connection between us and nature, much more than just beautiful flowers and trees, but our environment and other kind of insects, animals, and everything. This is a very Chinese belief uh, in a way. Also importantly, the ultimate goal is architecture can help us to connect with ourselves, you know, our inner self, our spirit, the ultimate self-reflection. So this is a central idea in all the project we do. Each of the project as a new discovery for us. The next part to us, very important thing, architecture must be radical. This talking about strategies in dealing with problems, issues, complexities. For us, we have to come with innovative radical strategies to deal with the problems on hand. But on the other hand, the architecture has to be poetic in spirit so that it can touch people. Listening to the curator, now a little bit closer to home, from my hometown, we have told stories this week. We're heading to Sao Paulo to look at the iconic building Sesc Pompeia, which is a very famous cultural center in the city. In the pages of Civitas, a richly illustrated monograph dedicated to the architecture of Sao Paulo from publisher Monet Books, one work quickly captures the eye due to its intriguing profile, Sesc Pompeia. From a distance, the complex's most striking feature, two concrete towers connected by a series of diagonal walkways, appear to signal an austere structure. But when moving closer, one finds a small citadel, brimming with life. Set in the working-class district of Pompeia, the site is home to a collection of 1920s factories that were supposed to be demolished for a leisure center. Yet the architect, Lina Bobardi, who before the war had worked with Joe Ponti in her native Italy, had different ideas. She admired the elegance of the industrial buildings with their enabic system of reinforced concrete and by the fact that the site was already spontaneously hosting community activities among the buildings where workers once made oil barrels. Rather than upset this reality, Bobardi simply amplified it. First, she looked to expose the concrete and brick, emphasizing original details with bright color and restoring the intricate sawtooth roof structure of the worksheds. Two rows of sheds were repurposed to host a canteen, library, theater, workshops, and exhibition space, all furnished with Bobardi's modular wooden furniture. A small indoor pool is carved into the floor and filled with smooth rocks and pebbles to allow a touch of nature to enter. Outside, there's a large open deck that serves as a de facto urban beach for sun worshippers. 
Next to this are the massive towers, rising 25 meters into the air, designed by Bobardi in rough concrete, linked by footbridges. Here, she placed the sports venues, with swimming pool, basketball courts, and fitness area with changing rooms. She juxtaposed delicate sliding lattice screens against roughly cut window holes to let in daylight. Her inclusion of a slim, cylindrical water tower alludes to a factory chimney and pays respect to the site's industrial heritage. In transforming a place of work into an oasis of leisure and culture, Bobardi was careful to not wipe away the past. The cultural venues are not perfectly white viewing rooms and pristine theaters. She preferred a more gritty setting that simulates the senses with its focus on materials and color. In speaking about Cesc Pompeia after it was completed in 1986, Bobardi remarked, Architecture for me is to see an old man or child with a full plate of food walking elegantly across our restaurant, looking for a place to sit at a communal table. In Cesc Pompeia, she's ensured there's a seat for everyone in a space that continues to serve the local community. And all Londoners know that the Elizabeth Line, you know, it took its time, but finally it is opening. What do we think of it? It is going to be quite a big deal. Firstly, because it's the um, the extent to which it's adding to London's rail capacity is enormous. It's something like ten, a ten percent increase in rail capacity, which which is you know that's a significant deal in and of itself. It will relieve a couple of very overcrowded tube lines, uh, like the Central and the Jubilee, but but. Um, it will also be much, much quicker. Um, so the the entire journey from from Paddington at the western end to to the Canary Wharf Financial District, which can only take you about forty minutes, I think, you will be able to do that in one train in seventeen. So it is the sort of thing that's going to transform uh, the life of a lot of Londoners and the way they get around in ways we can't necessarily predict yet. There will be places that suddenly your friends are buying houses in Woolwich or something, and you'll be unable to to understand how this has happened. And it will be because of Crossrail. Whether that means anyone beyond our fair city should be concerned about. <laughs> it's a different question. But but certainly within London, it is quite a big deal, yeah. Well, for those outside the city, I think just one of the things that's interesting is just how spread out London is. And I think many people in other cities that I've lived in could certainly uh, relate to that. I lived in Berlin before London, massively spread out city as well. Daniela, does, does a project like this make you... I suppose, eager to do, to do that long east-west or west-east travel that you've been uh, not doing until now? Well, like John, I'm one of these rare creatures that you sometimes meet in London, people who are from London. We are we seem to be very, very rare, like, like some sort of fairies. But um, I think this will make a psychological difference, really. We are, another thing that might surprise people uh, outside um, this fair city is really how divided people are between north, south, east, and west. It's, it's quite tribal. We tend to stay in our own areas, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you were born here and grew up here, oh my goodness, even more so. So I think there's this, the psychological um, change of being able to travel more easily um, from place to place. And also, even if you cut the journey time down by nine minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, that also makes enough of a difference. You've been willing to, to, went, to venture out of your of your comfort zone. It's, it's that psychological impact, isn't it, of a little bit. But, John, we were just talking earlier um, uh, before the show about another aspect of this that is 
really has everybody talking almost more than the Elizabeth line itself, and that is the name, because on some st- or on stations it will be called the this is a hard one to explain, but basically it will be called the Elizabeth line instead of just Elizabeth, as most other lines are. The northern is just the northern, at least on stations, even though we then refer to it as the northern line. Yeah. Why is this such a big deal? And you have a conspiracy theory about it. I do it as well. have a conspiracy theory. I have thought about this too much. As, <laughs> Everybody as has thought about this a lot. That's it, what I that's the impression I get. I mean, I I actually I, I do have a theory about why people so I used to edit a website <laughs> called City Metric, which is an urbanism website from the New Statesman and we would run a lot of variations on London tube map because they were a form of clickbait you know you would just guarantee a huge amount of web traffic for that and the theory I came up with to explain this is you know there are nine million people in London give or take everyone has a different idea of like which bits are interesting which bits are important they don't necessarily come from the same you know background or social class or, or, or ethnic group or anything one of the few things we all have in common as a reference point is the tube map uh, is is that kind of transit. And I think this is true of a lot of cities. I think you can get New Yorkers talking about the subway map in the same way. Um, so this is why I think everyone's so so exercised about this. Um, as you say, they have started uh, putting putting the name on on the maps within within existing tube carriages, and it does say Elizabeth Line instead of just Elizabeth. My conspiracy theory about this is that's because just putting the word Elizabeth sounds weird because Elizabeth is obviously the name of a person, not the name of a transport link. Um, and yeah, the, the, we do have a Victoria Line, but we've had decades to get used to that, and also. By the time the Victoria line arrived, Queen Victoria had been dead for quite some time. Queen Elizabeth is touch wood still with us. Um, so that makes it a slightly different prospect. And it does just, it doesn't trip off the tongue, does it? It just sounds strange. Uh, my producers are pointing to the Battersea Power Station station as another example of the absurdity of this. Uh, Daniela, I, th- I sense that you are a... She's waving her hands. Wa- waving her really hands. Going, I mean, it's amazing how excited we get about this, but grammar, grammar matters. Well, I would say this as a journalist, grammar matters. <laughs> Maybe, you know, in, in its... Um, uh, not in all its forms. Um, yeah, it's really, really annoying... <laughs> I, I've been arguing about this all day and some people don't seem to see how it's annoying. You can't you don't say the Northern Line line and you don't say Battersea Power Station station. And this is really almost also wonderfully the most British argument that's possibly uh, possible to ha- have so uh, I'm quite enjoying it as well and yet I'm sure so many other countries could relate as you said John to subway arguments naming conventions yeah. it's all also as everyone will have picked up from all our other stories the world's pretty depressing right now this is <laughs> this kind of nonsense is quite comforting compared to everything else And finally on the show, I like to always end with a drink or food story. We have the head chef of London's Leroy restaurant on a fresh spring starter made with seasonal British ingredients. Hey, my name is Simon Shand. I'm the head chef at Leroy restaurant in Shoreditch. And the recipe I'm going to talk through today is just come on the menu at the moment. We're using springtime English asparagus. It's new in season. Sauce grabiche. Prosciutto to San Daniele and uh, crushed hazelnuts. So it's a nice, good-sized starter for this time of year. And it's pretty traditional. It's not anything groundbreaking, but it kind of covers a few things which are interesting to do with asparagus. I think, like, a nice way to start when you think about cooking it. It depends how adventurous you're feeling. You can, when you have, like, the asparagus come in, try and trim as little off it as possible. 
I think sometimes we can take off too much of that woody end. I think quite a lot of it's actually edible and you can just end up with a bit too much waste. But when you trim that off, you can even blanch that in like salted boiling water. How we do it though, we'd get a large pan, like a dash of olive oil in there and put the asparagus in and then just pour just a bit of hot water over there so it barely covers the asparagus, like three quarters of the way up there. Do that on a really high heat and let that like reduce down and this is going to glaze the asparagus and you still get it nice and tender but it'll be more vibrant, a bit more concentrated in the flavour. Anything you put in a large pot of boiling water is going to lose a lot of the flavour to the pan. The sauce crebiche that goes on the sides of there is sort of a jazzed up egg mayonnaise kind of crossed with a tartar sauce. I think it's probably how I'd describe it. You hard boil a bunch of eggs and cool them down and peel them. Separate the yolks from the whites. With the yolks, you're going to make your mayonnaise base out of that. So you're going to blend that with some mustard, some lemon juice, a little bit of vinegar. Then like a neutral oil, like rapeseed oil, a vegetable oil. Once that's all made, the rest of the egg whites will just get chopped through there and mixed together. Capers, parsley, chervil, tarragon, finely like minced shallots. And we're just doing thin slices of prosciutto de San Daniele. But I mean, any kind of cured ham is going to be quite nice there. And that saltiness is going to offset nicely with how fatty the sauce crebiche is. And it pairs really nicely together with all of it. And we've been just crushing a few hazelnuts toasting them, crushing them, and putting over the top of the finished dish, and that's about the long and short of it, really. That made me very hungry, and that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.